Here's another inspiring message from Northside Community Church, Sydney. Uh, we've been looking at how Jesus started an obscure movement from an area in modern-day Palestine f- with a bunch of four young guys, literal te- teenagers, that went and changed the world. We've also been wondering, why is it that we see, and we know anecdotally that on one hand you can see some churches, you can see Christians that, let's be real about it, are stale are lifeless, are are inward focused. And yet on the other hand, there are churches that are dynamic and there's life and there's power and there's dynamism. And we've been asking, well, why the difference? And uh, one of the things that we asked last week is we we asked, well, is it an ingredients issue or a methods issue? Because certainly all Christians have the same ingredients, the word of God, the spirit of God, the model of Jesus Christ, the community of God. So if it's not an ingredients issue, it must be a methods issue. And so we've been looking at what other methods of Jesus that started a movement that changed the world. And what we saw and are seeing is that it was four key calls that changed the world. The call, first of all, to come and see. The call to those who are lost, those who are not yet awoken to the reality of Jesus, just to come and hang out and check out what Christianity is. Then there's the call to come and follow. We're going to look at who the people that sit in chair two are this morning. Then there's the call to come follow me, I will make you fishers of people. And then there's the call in the fourth chair to go and bear fruit. So why the difference? My thesis is this. I see a lot of Christians, I see a lot of people within the church, not just this church, within the church generally, right? You've probably seen them too. Christians where there isn't that life and there isn't that dynamism and there isn't that power. And my thesis is part of the reason there isn't that life and dynamism is because they've misunderstood what Christianity is all about. See, people think Christianity is a lot of things, but when we read from this passage this morning in John chapter 1, here's what we don't see in Christianity. What we don't see is a big building. What we don't see is a lot of religious practices. What we don't see uh, is a lot of religious rules. What we simply see is a call. What we see is the genesis of Christianity. And the genesis, the beginning of Christianity, is simply this, the call to come follow me. The call from Jesus that changed the world, come follow me. The call from Jesus. And so what we'll see this morning is uh, the significance of that call, the call from chair one to chair two is to come and follow me from lost to believer. It's the call to follow me. A decision point is made there. So we'll see the significance of the call, who he calls it to and what they're on about, how we minister to people in chair two, and then why or why not we may or may not see the power and the dynamism that Jesus promised Nathaniel when he said to him, hey, Sonny Jim, you ain't seen nothing yet. So the significance of the call, who it's to, how we minister to people in chair two, and why or why not that power is emerging in our lives. You see, if Christianity is fundamentally a call to come follow me, we see that in John chapter 1, verse 43. It says, the next day Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. The beginning of the movement that changed the world, follow me. Now, here's the thing. If Christianity is a call to follow me, then it means the first thing we learn is that when Jesus calls you to follow him, you are dealing with a person, not a set of intellectual principles or practices. You're dealing with a person. Now, if that's the case, if Jesus says, 
follow me, not follow that, not follow these principles, not follow this way, not follow this strategy. If he's saying, follow me, then what it means is that Jesus is, the real Jesus is always picking a fight with people about who he is, right? If you read him through the scriptures, he's always saying to people, who do you say that I am? What do you make of me? What do others make of me? Am I really the son of God? And so there's actually a radical, if we could put it this way, there's actually a radical self-centeredness in Jesus. And here's why. It's because Jesus understands the dynamic that is at the heart of every human being, and it's this, that there is a battle going on for the centre of your soul. For its attentions, for its, the affections of the heart, there is a battle going on for it. It's going on right now. I tell you how you know, it's, it's, it's the thing that you've been thinking about three or four times already and we're only three minutes into the message. I know, I know how our minds work. You've already wandered off into something else. The battle happens as we speak right now, as you hear his words. There is something that is scrambling and battling for the centre of your soul. And Jesus' radical call to discipleship to follow him is to say, you have to slot me into that slot and make me first, make me the priority, make me the centre. Now, that sounds radically self-centred, but it's the way that it's got to work. And here's why. Look, let me be as frank with you as I possibly can. Look, when people come to me and we hang out at Christianity Explained and we work through these questions of Christianity, when people come and see Chair One and I chat with Chair One people, often the f- statements they make and phrases go, look, Sam, I'm, I'm interested in Christianity, but what's the Bible's view on creation? And what's the Bible's view on uh, sexuality and what's the Bible's view on ethics and what's the Bible's view on truth? Oh, what's what's all that about? Now, look, if if you if you come to Christianity obsessed with those sorts of questions, then you're forgetting that it's a call from Jesus to follow me. If I'm being blunt about it, you're not quite getting it. What what a person like that is saying is, look, I'm interested in Christianity, but I'm just wondering if it will fit my agenda. And the whole point is that. Christianity is not practices and principles. Christianity is not something that you take up. It takes you up. So if you're saying, how do I fit this into my, how does, will this work for me? Look, John 1 says that Jesus is the incarnate God, that all things were created through him. This is the guy who has the universe wrapped around his little pinky. This is a guy with infinite power. This is the one who knows you intimately. Is this the sort of person that you're going to invite into your life to be your personal assistant? Oh, yeah, don't call me Jesus. We'll call you. Right? <laughs> he says, I, I don't work that way. You can't treat me that way. The call is come follow me. In other words, make me central. Now, by the way, he's not saying you can't ask these questions about creationism and sexuality and ethics and all the rest of it out of the Bible. But what he's saying is you've got to get the order right because this is a call and I'm a person, not a principle. Deal with me first. Who do you say that I am? If I am the son of God, if I've punched a hole in the universe, if I've come down as the incarnate God, if I'm calling you into the greatest adventure you will ever see in your life, then deal with me first. Then the principles and the practices. See the significance of the call? I think that's the challenge for some Christians, don't you? I think some Christians have been, well, they've been called into a certain style of church or a certain style of belief, or they've taken Christianity up, but they haven't been taken up by the call of Jesus Christ to come and follow him. So you've got to understand that it's a call first to follow him. Now, who does he 
call out to. Uh, what is fascinating, if you've got your Bibles in front of you, you can flick through, you can do homework during the week. Look at, look at just chapters 2, 3, 4 of John afterwards. Uh, what does he do? Chapter 2, that famous story, he goes uh, from down on the Jordan up to Cana, a town near his hometown of Nazareth, and, and he changes the water into wine. Ironically, it says it's there that the disciples put their faith in him. <laughs> Got to get the call right. <laughs> um, then um, back down to Jerusalem. Uh, Festival of Passover has an encounter with this guy called Nicodemus, who's an old guy and gets told that he's got to be born again. Has a bit of a freak out moment when he tries to work the physical practicalities of how that is going to work. Jesus says, it's not physical, it's spiritual, it's okay, you can chill out. Uh, then John chapter 4, they've finished at Passover, they go up and there's the woman at the well. We talked about her earlier on the year in Samaria. What, the disciples come out with shopping bags full. Are you guys hungry? And, and he's, they've got no clue what he was doing and, and he sets on fire the, one of the Jerusalem's first evangelists as she goes and saves the whole town and converts them to Christ. And Now, what is Jesus doing? Certainly this is not a picture of what we see in Acts where he says, you will be my witnesses to all the world, to Jerusalem, Judea, all the earth. This is not Peter straight away preaching to 3,000 people and they are on the steps of the southern steps of the temple and 3,000 are added in one, night, one day. This is not the guys who are getting stoned to death for their professing their faith. What's Jesus doing? What's he modelling here? Um, this is the nursery. I, this, this is not a picture of this is not a picture of uh, these evangelists flying, being flung out the minute that he's called them. This is the closest picture as they walk around the countryside of 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 a mother duck with her little ducklings, the twelve little ducklings behind him, and they're crossing the road and they're they're wandering through the the countryside. Why? Why? It's because when you first are called to follow Jesus, you're a spiritual baby. The call to come to follow and people in chair two are spiritual babies. Now, if people in chair two are spiritual babies, then what do spiritual babies need? Uh, Spiritual babies, look, first thing a spiritual baby needs is they need to know whose they are. Uh, They need to know who, who they belong to, who their family is. So the first thing that a new believer in chair two needs to know is whose they are. You've seen when your parents probably did that to you and they said, don't you behave like that. You know, you're, you're a Haddon and we Haddons, we behave like this. You, see, whose you are affects how you act. They, they've got to know whose they are. There are 33 different things that the Bible says are bestowed upon you when you first are called to follow Jesus. You're adopted, you're forgiven, you're made alive, you're safe in him. You see, a Christian's identity is radically different from the rest of the world because a Christian first understands whose they are before they understand who they are. And ironically, that, that's what grows a new Christian. Anywhere in the Bible, if you look at behaviour modification in the Bible, anywhere in the Bible you see that, you'll see first, like in Colossians 3, since then you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on the things above, set your mind on the things above, therefore, do not slander. Humble yourself. Don't, don't mess with the house of God. See, see how it's identity first and behaviour second? You've got to know who's your are, who's you are if you're a baby. Um, babies also need to know to learn how to walk. <laughs> they need to not only learn who they are, but how to walk. 
Uh, have you ever been in that scenario where you've got grandkids or a cousin or a family friend and you've been in that special moment where a little one learns how to stand up and walk for the first time? Has anyone ever been in that moment? Everyone's like cheering them on. Yay! Yay! Look, that's how the church should be when we see new believers here. When we see someone who's new to Christ, look, they're fumbly, they're stumbly. And so sadly, so often churches get that so wrong, don't they? And they spend more time up in the back pews. Those traditional churches are oh, tutting everyone. Look at their life. Look at how they dress. Look at how they speak. Look at how they act. No, we should be rejoicing in watching people learn how to walk as Jesus walked. You've got to learn how to Walk. They've also got to learn how to talk. And didn't we see that this morning in the baptism? New believers are going to learn how to not only tell their own story and their personal testimony, that's why we do it in a baptism every time, but then eventually to go on and share the great story of God. So babies have not only got to learn whose they are, learn how to walk, learn how to talk. Here's the other thing that new babies are going to do, chair two people, they've got to learn how to feed themselves. Have you ever seen a toddler in a high chair? It's messy. (laughs) It is messy. You better get some wipes because there is food going everywhere. Look, the, the whole point is new Christians create a lot of mess in the church. It's messy. Okay. And again, we said these traditional churches, they don't like that because, oh, look, they said something that I don't agree with theologically or they're in your home group and they something, say something that's a little bit radical or they're living a messy life or they're acting in a messy way. Now, look, when we, when we get on top of them and we talk them down like that and we have a go at them too early, you know what that's like? That's like ripping the spoon out of the baby's mouth. <laughs> You've got to let them have a bit of the mess. Because that's part of what the Christian life is all about. They're babies. They're supposed to make a mess. Chair two people make a mess. They've got to learn how to feed themselves. Uh, here's, here's the last thing before we move on to how we help them out. Uh, they need to learn how to, who they are, walk, talk, feed themselves. Uh, here's the last one. They've got to be toilet trained. <laughs> um, my, my, my little guy, my little guy, Zach, at the moment, he refuses to have a bath. Um, because a couple of weeks back, uh, he, he did a poo in the bath. I hope we're okay with that. <laughs> Speaking of messy stuff, he did a poo. And um, he refuses to go back there. He's, he's petrified of the thing. So, Zach, you want a bath? Shawa. <laughs> yeah. he's, he's terrified of what is going on there. Now, what, what's going on there? Look, my son hasn't yet dealt with his stuff. Um, nor of many Christians, nor of many new Christians. You see, to, to build healthy chair people, when you're a baby Christian, you've got to learn how to deal with your sin. You could phrase it another way if you want. You've got to learn how to deal with your sin. And have you found that? I've found that as a pastor. How many times that people, when they accidentally poo in the bath, refuse to come back there? They withdraw from community. They don't come to church. New babies need to learn how to deal with their stuff. They need to know how to come and confess their stuff before God and get rid of it. Wipe the thing down, dead all it, understand that they're forgiven and all's been made new and get back in. They've got to be toilet trained. 
So learn how to walk, talk, feed themselves, be toilet trained. That's, uh, that's, that's what a Chantu Christian looks like. Now, we're all not meant to stay there, by the way. That's a whole other sermon. Uh, you're not supposed to stay spiritual babies. The amount of times that Paul would talk about, oh my goodness, I should be feeding you meat, but you're still on milk. Remember those passages? You're supposed to grow up from spiritual babyhood to spiritual teenagehood to spiritual maturity, all within this chair to range someone here. So there's a range. So how do you know that you're not a spiritual baby? I'll look, I'll talk about it quickly, but how do you know you're a spiritual teenager and no longer a baby anymore? Uh, the way I best describe it is that, uh, look, if, if, a baby, if a baby's hungry and they need attention, what do they do? Cry. And what does the parent do? What does the father or the mother do? They, they run straight to them and they grab them and they wrap them up and they feed them. And so there's a lot of crying, there's a lot of attention, there's a lot of emotion, and there's a lot of connection. Now, if a teenager comes and they're hungry and they go to the parent well, what, and they start crying, what does the parent do? Oh, shush, go to the cupboard, get it yourself. Now, here's the point. You know you're a spiritual teenager when you move into life and you go and do life sensing the absence of the father's presence. And that's okay. Because you, you know that you're his and... And, and you understand that, but you begin to move further and further and further out into life, not feeling, you know, that spine tingling feeling that every Bible passage you opened up, and oh my goodness, look at the revelation. Anyone ever felt that as you've grown up spiritually, that as you become a spiritual teenager and more mature, you, you lose that goosebumpy on the back of your neck, falling in love with God type feeling. <laughs> and then you just move into the sense of go feed yourself, go work it out yourself. But I'm your dad, I know, I'm here, it's okay. Uh, you also know you're a spiritual teenager. Here's the negative side of the coin you see in some churches. Um, teenagers do stuff and they should know better. <laughs> you see a lot of spiritual teenagers within the church. There's a lack of humility or there's tension or there's disunity or there's disruption. They've been Christians for years. And you see stupid teenage behaviour and you go, you should know better. That's how you know you're a spiritual teenager. Uh, when you're a spiritual adult, uh, you're humbled, you're different, you recognise that, that you constantly have to grow. You see, that's the difference between a teenager and an adult. A spiritual teenager thinks they're an adult <laughs> and a, an adult knows that they have to constantly be growing. And so this is a stage, this is a step, this is a process. But chair two people are primarily spiritual babies. So how do we minister to chair two people? Remember, if our strategy is going to be the strategy of Jesus, how do we minister to people in this chair? How do we meet their needs? Here's the first thing I think. If, if a chair two person is a spiritual baby, without immediate help, they won't survive. You guys ever see that news story of that poor little baby that was left in a drain somewhere out in the western suburbs? 24 hours max, luckily someone got down in the drain, heard the cry, picked them up. What it means is if people are spiritual babies, then there's only so long that they can be left by themselves before they die. And haven't we, have you ever seen that dynamic where someone has an amazing conversion to Christ and if they're not connected into the family of God, they drift off? So what it means is for those of us that are other chair twoers at this end of the spectrum or chair threeers, uh, we've got to get alongside people who are newer Christians. The first question is, how, how many people are you relating to that are spiritual youngsters in comparison to you? If you're only hanging around people that are the mature, then you're not helping the process of looking after the babes. 
Now, the other principle that we learn from this, if that chair two people are spiritual babies, is that the church is supposed to be a family, not a daycare centre. The church is supposed to be a family, not a daycare centre. Look at the model of Jesus. When he goes from Cana, what does it say that he does? He goes down to Capernaum, which was his home base, and he stays at Peter's mum's house. And then they walk around the countryside together, living, breathing, walking, talking. What's that a picture of? It's a picture of family. You see, daycare churches are when all the kids get put into the same room together and everyone's the same age, and it's up to the room leader to look after all the kids. Family churches, they go in and everyone's all different ages and there's mess and there's chaos and, and, and there's learning and there's grappling and there's a bit of strife and there's a few blood noses, but there's love. And, and, and they're, they're unified. We're, we're family and they wrestle that through together. Uh, day, daycare, you drop your kids at daycare, expect the room leader to do the job. Daycare churches go in and expect that it's going to be the pastor that grows you and teaches you and looks after the new believers. A family church, a family church on the other hand is, is radically different. And the biggest distinction is this. Have you ever noticed that in a family, how quickly the second child often develops? Like the first child seems to take 18 months to take their first steps and the second child seems to do it in about three. <laughs> Why is that? I think it's because they've, they've got an older sibling. They've got an example that is constantly in front of them that's just two steps ahead. And what it means for us is that as, as, as a spiritual family, and that's why it's no accident when I write emails to you all, I call us the Northside family. I don't just make that up. It's one of the most powerful metaphors that the Bible has for us. It means that one of the greatest ways that we will grow new believers in this place is by being good older brothers and sisters. And what that means now is it's not up to the pastors to grow people, but up to the peers the brothers and the sisters that do all the growing. Uh, funnily enough, uh, I, I had a discussion with one of our young adult girls. Uh, they'd had uh, a new believer in their connect group that was that darkness to light type story where she came in and she was asking questions about Christianity and then she gave her life to Christ one Sunday night and one of the girls from connect group came up and said, Sam, Sam, like, uh, okay, well, what, do we, what do we do now? What are you, you going to do for her? What, what program can she, can she go to? And I said, well, don't ask me. What, what are you going to do for her? You're the big sis. You're the one who's just two steps ahead. Uh, if I do anything about it, we're just going to be a daycare. <laughs> I'll just end up being the room leader. No, we're a family. So healthy churches ministering to chair two people are families, not a daycare centre. So if new believers are babies, if they need immediate attention and we're a family and they best grow by interacting with their older brothers and sisters, then the last point in terms of how we minister to them is this. It means you need to look after your own example as an older brother or sister. Have you ever been in one of those? Have we got any eldest of the families in the auditorium? Here we go. They're going to get where I'm coming from. You know, when you have that heart-to-heart with your parents and you've been a little bit cheeky, a little bit naughty, instead of a smack, and it's the nice talk. And it's Now, look, you have to be well-behaved. Why? Because you need to be a good example for your little brother or sister. <laughs> so, church, we're going to have one of those talks, okay? If you've been badly behaved... If the example's not quite where it's at, one of the reasons is you need to be a good example for your little brother or sister. 
And the exciting thing in this place is we're getting more and more of them. And what I love about it is, as one preacher once said, that new believers are the crisis of maturity. This is exactly the way that we stop being stale as a church. Because that girl in the Connect group said, this, this new girl to our group, she's asking all sorts of questions and I don't quite know the answers to it. Well, you better go out and find the answers to it then, don't you? New believers create a crisis of maturity for the older brothers and sisters. So, as we finish up this morning... <coughs> How do, we, how do we know the difference in terms of where we sit? Chair two people are those, look, 80% of Christians in the church sit here. If we look at the spectrum of how it goes, come and see the lost, come and follow believers. If we drew out a graph, 80% of the church would sit here. And it's a spectrum and it's a lifelong journey and process. So the question is, where do you sit for most of us in the chair two spectrum? Are you a baby Christian or are you a spiritual teenager or are you a mature Christian? Funnily enough, listening to what spiritual babies need, I thought maybe I'm not as grown up as I thought I was. <laughs> maybe you're feeling that too this morning. You see, here's how you know you're a spiritual teenager versus a mature Christian. Um, teenagers think they know everything. <laughs> so if you think that you're not a baby, probably a baby or a spiritual teenager. <laughs> If you have a heart dynamic that says whether I'm 40 or 50 or 60 or 80, and Lord, do I have a lot to learn from you, maybe you're up this end of the spectrum. That is the spectrum that all of us exist on as fundamentally chair to people. And so the fundamental question for us then, if we, if we think, well, what is Jesus' strategy? How will our strategy be like that? It means for you this week. And this coming year for us as a church, if you just ask yourself these two questions, you can be a great older brother or sister if you ask yourself the question, how am I growing up and how am I helping others grow up? And it's as simple as that. And so where do you, where do you sit with all of that this morning? Uh, that, that is the call that changed the world. Come, follow me. Have we misunderstood that church? Have we... Have we not quite got that? Is there, is there life? Is there joy? Is there dynamism? Is there change? Is there growth? Is there humility? Is there boldness? Are there those things in your life? If they're not, then maybe my thesis was that we've misunderstood the call. Now, look, let me speak to, as we finish up this morning, those that are even underneath this level. You know, there's some of you this morning that, look, realistically in your head, you're going, strategies, big picture, come on, Sam. Oh, I've got a business that's failing this week. I got health challenges. I got a loved one that's got health challenges that you wouldn't even know about. I've, I'm just, I got financial issues. I'm just, I'm just trying to get through life. We're talking about four chairs. Hey, there's a thread that runs through all of these that we have to understand that that, that Jesus, Jesus had a strategy, but he he, he had to hold onto a thread through it all. Remember, he, he grew his boys and they did the family dynamic and they end up being the ones that betray him and fall asleep on him in the garden. There's a thread through this that every follower of Jesus must follow. It's a bit like the thread in, uh, there was an old fantasy book called The Princess and the Goblin by George MacDonald. Princess Irene, she was a princess and there were goblins outside the castle and she'd go to a fairy godmother who she'd always go to for help and only she could see the fairy godmother. They would talk all the time up in the attic. 
And the fairy godmother said, Irene, there are going to be times when you're in great danger and I can't always be with you. And so she said, I'm going to give you a, a ring, a magical ring that's attached to my magical thread. And if you're ever in danger, if you're ever afraid, then keep this under your pillow, put the ring on and just follow the thread and there you will find me. So sure enough, a danger comes into Irene's life one dark night when the goblins are starting to pound in against the walls of the castle. And so, of course, she goes under a pillow and she puts the ring on and she follows the thread. And instead of the thread taking her up into the attic where Grandma normally was, it took her out the door towards the goblins. And then she followed the thread even further and it took her out into the dark, dark forest. And then the minute that she got really, really scared with it, she she went to turn back and the minute that she went to turn back, the thread would disappear. This magical thread would only work, uh, work unless she went forward with the ring and she kept going further and further forward until this silly ring took her right to the mouth of the cave of the goblins herself. And she sat there crying as a little eight-year-old girl and she couldn't understand it. Why would grandmother be taking her through all of this and... So she claws away, her fingers are bleeding, pulls away the rocks and inside the goblin cave she finds her best friend and one of the heroes of the story, Curdy. And, and he said, how did you find me? And she said, well, it's this magical ring. I wouldn't have found you if it weren't for this. He said, let's go, let's go out of the cave. She tried to go and guess what? The thread disappears. He said, no, we need to go this way. And she says, I hate to tell you, Curdy, but my, my thread only goes this way. It only goes forward and it says we must go deeper into the cave. And they go deeper into the darkness until eventually they are led through all of the darkness together and they're led to safety and there is grandma at the other end of the string. What's the point? Come, follow me. Follow my thread. Forget strategy, forget the rest of it. Some of you are following a thread out the doors of this auditorium this morning that looks like it's going into the mouth of the goblin cave. And you're crying and you're angry at God and you don't understand what he's saying at the moment. And we have to understand that the call to follow me is the call to follow his thread. That's a thread. Why should you? It's a thread, it's a thread that he followed. You don't think when he followed that thread through Gethsemane, when he followed the thread to the cross and he shouted out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You don't think that he was wondering what the heck the fairy godmother was doing in all of this? And yet we know from his story that that death led to a resurrection and a new life and glory exploded in his life. And we know that for every one of these four boys and 12 boys that went and answered this call to follow me, they went through their own goblin caves. And so there will be moments in your life this morning where you don't want to think about strategies and you don't want to think about discipleship. You don't want to think about any of the other funny terms that we use at church. Don't. Come, follow me. Follow the thread. You will find me and I'll lead you to safety. Let's pray. Father, help us in this to recognise the fundamental nature of your call, Lord Jesus. Help us to not stray forward or back from all of that. Help us to recognise that you are the all-wise, the all-sovereign God in our lives. And that like each and every one of these young teenagers that followed you in first century Palestine, Father, that when they followed that thread, they were led into a life of danger, of course, but a big life, a big life of adventure and a life that ultimately changed the world. Father, I declare that dynamic over each and every one of us this morning. 
awaken our hearts to that reality this morning. Oh, Father, we repent of our small-mindedness. We, we are sorry, Father, for the ways that we are consumed by the things that are around us. And Lord, we pray that in this moment by the Holy Spirit that you will help us uh, place Jesus Christ back into the centre of our souls, that through your guidance and your power that you will continue to win the battle for our affections. And that there would be a whole room full of believers this morning that walk out of this place a little bit more centred on you, Lord Jesus, and a little bit more clearer of the call. Whatever happens in that, we leave to you, Lord. We see amazing things happening in that already in this place, Father, and we praise you and we thank you for that. Help us just to remember what our part in all of this is, to obediently walk as you walked and to follow you. We thank you for who you are, Lord Jesus, and we pray this now in your mighty name. Amen. Well, thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to find out more about Northside, visit northsidechurch.org.au.